0: What a joy to be back worshiping with our MCC family. Here's a question. Is it true that you are all better Christians since we last saw you? (laughs) How many times have you attended church, been to Bible studies, had your personal quiet times? You must be good Christians by now. Kinder, less self-centered, more generous than you used to be. If you ask me this same question, remember, I'm losing my memory, so I can't remember how I was and how that compares with how I am now. Actually, sometimes we feel like we're going backwards. Now that we have settled in Seattle, we're close to family, and being close to family brings all kinds of new challenges. Um, Sometimes we feel like we're back at square one we hope that we're learning to be better grandparents, and that's, that's a joy. Better husband after 42 years? Um, well, ask Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, don't ask Carolyn. <laughs> a while back, a guy came and spoke to our men's group at our church. He lived on a cul-de-sac, the end of a street. And he said his neighbor watched him and his family go to church every Sunday morning. So one time his neighbor commented, don't you Christians get it? Why do you have to keep going to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Is Christianity that hard to understand? So how would you answer if your neighbor asked you that question? If you go to church every Sunday, does that make you a better Christian? When I was a child, we had Sunday school attendance pins. Any of you remember that? <laughs> that that was awards for perfect attendance. In fact, if you were traveling with your family out of town and you attended a church, wherever that was, that counted toward perfect attendance. We wore those pins as proudly as decorated veterans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we're not careful, our Christian habits and practices, as good as they can be, can lead us into moralism. And that's... Basically the one point I want to try to make today what is moralism and how is moralism different than the gospel in other words we might use are legalism or religion basically moralism is improvement in our behavior getting our lives straight so in moralism the bible is seen as one of many self-help books to improve our behavior. We're born into a world of moralism. When we're children, our parents reward us for good behavior and we're punished for bad behavior. In school, we're honored for high grades and, of course, we're afraid to bring home those report cards if we didn't do so well. At work, we're promoted for good performance and bypassed if we don't meet the company expectations. Parents, teachers, bosses, coaches, wherever we turn, we're awarded and measured by our performance. So understanding the message of Christianity as moral performance is very natural, particularly to non-Christians. The thinking is that if we behave well and continue to improve, we can earn God's favor Moralism says you must live a holy and good life in order to be saved. Actually, our non-Christian friends think that this is our message, just about behavior, just about getting better. This is a misunderstanding of the gospel, a misinterpretation. In fact, it's a false gospel. Have you ever heard somebody say, maybe a friend, I could never be a Christian, I'm just not good enough. I heard that Jesus said, love your enemies. Well, I could never do that. Others might think, well, I'm better behaved than my Christian co-worker. I know he goes to church every Sunday, but I see how he acts at work on Monday. You know, just a couple of days ago, Carolyn and I were sitting in the home of a Japanese returnee friend, and he explained that the reason he's not a Christian is because he sees the behavior of Christians and thinks they missed the mark. Japan is a nation full of law-abiding citizens. And those of us who've had the privilege and the experience of living in a society so blessed, where people respect the law and self-restraint and there's order, people are well-behaved. But sometimes I wonder if this isn't what keeps Japanese people from understanding and embracing the gospel. If it's about moral behavior, Japan will get a better score than many nations. They'll be at the front of the line if getting into heaven is about good behavior. Non-Christians get moralism, it makes sense. That's the way we've all been raised. If you've been raised right, then you have a great deal of confidence in your own achievement and righteousness. Several weeks ago, a new group of Japanese students came to Seattle, to the campus, and uh, the very first guy I talked to, and the very first minute I was talking to him was Kosuke. And Kosuke said to me, and he didn't know who I was or where, he said, I want to learn about Christianity. Ooh, I started getting goosebumps on my arm. I thought, wow, you came to the right person. So I said, you know, Kosuke, this is Easter week, and Sunday coming up is Easter Sunday. I said, Please come to church with us. This is the most important Sunday in the the Christian year. So he did. He came to church with us and brought a friend. And Then we invited them home for Easter dinner. And as we were finishing up Easter dinner, Koska said, He said, I want to live a good life. And I figure that religion might help me. So I'm thinking, okay. Probably Koska is thinking behavior. Christianity, perhaps, or religion, because the previous Sunday he'd gone to a Jehovah's Witness church, he's looking for a way to improve his life and his behavior. Moralism is an attempt to save ourselves. People figure that this is the way to escape judgment. Good deeds can outweigh bad deeds. That's what my Muslim friends tell me all the time. It's a scale. If I do more good deeds, that will outweigh my bad deeds and that will get me into heaven. But moralism is fueled by our pride and an attempt to build up our own self-esteem. It leads to self-righteousness and judgmentalism. So we feel superior, we feel better than others. But of course, that's our own moral standards that we are measuring by. Everyone has their own set of standards of what's good and bad. According to Dallas World, everybody wants to be a good person and everybody has their own definition of what that good person looks like. Liberal moralists stress the importance of being involved in social causes. You're good if you recycle and save the forests. Conservative moralists believe that it's all about personal piety. You're good if you don't drink Smoke or chew or go out with girls that do. Every yakuza wants to be a good yakuza, whatever good means in the underworld. A good biblical picture of moralism is the story of the father and the two sons in Luke chapter 15 that you're very familiar with. The younger son ran away from home and squandered his family property, his family inheritance shamed his family reputation. But the older son was good. He stayed at home, obeyed all the rules, worked hard to meet his father's expectations. The older brother was self-righteous, judgmental and angry with his younger brother and the father's welcome home. He felt that as an obedient son, he deserved the father's favor. He misunderstood the nature of his father's love. If we Christians live like moralists, we misunderstand God's love. And this actually keeps people out of God's family, who wants to be like the elder brother. Moralism is at the heart of every cult and world religion. It's what you do and don't do that counts. A couple of Sundays ago, we were in Surabaya with Ron and Katie at the wedding and I went out to walk on a Sunday morning, the street was closed to cars and people were just out having a good time. And I saw uh, a line of young Indonesian girls, teen girls, long hair, stylish jeans, walking and laughing along. And then just a few paces behind them, I saw another group of girls about the same age, all wearing their burqas or their jilbabs, and covered from head to toe. Now, Muslim society quickly identifies which ones are the righteous ones? I wondered what they were thinking. I was wondering if the righteous ones were really wanting to be in the long hair and jeans. (laughs) Moralism is not the gospel. So what is the difference? What is the gospel? What sets the Christian message apart? Well, there's probably no better person in the scripture to tell us that than the Apostle Paul in his words we've read this morning. Remember Paul, he was that ooh, meticulously righteous guy, Pharisee, and just energetic for the cause of Phariseeism, a strict and devout follower of the law. As for legalistic, moralistic righteousness, faultless. But we know Paul's story. On the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with Jesus, the one he was persecuting. Paul became a new man. An entirely new message, especially for the Gentiles. And in Galatians, we hear Paul's testimony of that radical change. Paul, in Galatians, is telling about an experience he had in Antioch when Peter and Barnabas were there with him. And as Taka mentioned last week, the Jew boys showed up and they began demanding that these Gentile believers start conforming to and adding Jewish laws to their salvation. And Paul called Peter out in Barnabas on this. In 2.16 of Galatians, it says, By observing the law, no one will be justified that is made right with God. Paul is furious with these Galatians. You crazy Galatians, he says. How did your new life begin? By working your heads off to please God? Or by responding to God's message, the gospel, the good news? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Chapter 1, verse 6, that's a false gospel. In chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, the law was given to expose our sinfulness and show us the complete inadequacy of our own righteousness, self-righteousness. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to set us free from the law and make us his children. The gospel moves us from being earners, that is, earning our salvation, to being heirs, receiving it as a gift. Jesus came to do for us what trying to obey the law could never do. The gospel is not something we do, but something that has been done for us. The Galatian believers had started their spiritual journey hearing the good news about the death of Jesus on the cross putting their faith in his finished work now they were being influenced to add religious rules and practices and regulations to guarantee god's acceptance and favor and i'll read those words from titus again paul's clear message about what is the gospel once we too were foolish and disobedient. Our lives were full of evil and envy. But when God, our Savior, revealed His kindness and love, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life in the Holy Spirit. Because of His grace, He declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. I like Tim Keller's summary. He's the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in New York. The summary of the Gospel. Here it is. We are so bad that Jesus had to die for us, but we are so loved that he was glad to die for us. Isn't that a wonderful summary of the Gospel? We're so bad, we're so needy, we're so broken that he had to die for us. But we're so loved that he was glad to die for us. Albert Muller, another of our favorite authors and Christian leaders, says, our ultimate need is not a moral guide or philosophy instructor. We need a savior. The message of the scripture is that Christ died as a substitute for us, bearing our guilt, absorbing God's wrath, so that we might receive his righteousness. Keller reminds us, insists that the default mode of the human heart is moralism, earning our salvation. We come to faith in Christ, recognize that it's his work, but then we slip back into seeking to win his favor by our efforts. Without regularly embracing radical truth of the gospel, Keller says, Grace alone, grasped by faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, we slip back into efforts to save ourselves. We think, God, I've left my past life to follow you. I've been faithful in my Bible reading and my church attendance. Now, God, you owe me a blessing. Richard Lovelace, another author, says Christians rely on our sincerity, our past experience of conversion, our performance, And the fact that we don't sin as often or seriously as we used to for acceptance with God. The Christian life is not being forgiven for our sin, getting a clean slate, a new start, and then trying harder to live better than we did before. We drift back into religion. We say, I obey and then I'm accepted. But it's not trying harder, but transferring our trust away from ourselves and trusting him. The gospel sequence is just the opposite. First, I'm accepted, and then out of thanksgiving and love, I obey God's commands. So gospel obedience is not so that I won't look bad or lose my self-respect or lose God's favor and he'll send me to hell. Rather, my response of gratitude and joy and love in desire for God's glory and praise. We just read the verse again from Titus 2. It is the grace of God that brings salvation and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and make us his very own people, eager to do what is good. So the good works, the obedience that should characterize our Christian walks comes out of a grateful heart response to God's love. The gospel sets us free from the penalty and power of sin and enables us by the spirit to obey. Only the spirit of God working in our hearts can assure us that God delights in us and that we are safe and secure in his grace. So do you want to change? Do you want to grow in grace Do you want your obedience to flow from a grateful heart? Then let the gospel change you, train you, disciple you. Let the gospel transform your heart. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We can get up each morning like Martin Luther and begin by affirming that we are accepted We can look outside ourselves by faith by claiming the unearned righteousness of Christ. It's our only ground for acceptance. Then we can relax in the quality of trust that will produce increasing holiness as our faith is active in love and gratitude. So rather than spending a lot of time or energy measuring ourselves, measuring our growth, let's use our energy to focus on the Amazing gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So what can we tell our neighbor who says, why do you Christians have to keep going to church week after week? Well, we can tell our friends and neighbors that one of the reasons we return to church regularly and to Christian fellowship is that we all live in a performance-oriented world and we lose our bearing on the gospel. We can easily forget the miracle of God's amazing grace. And so we need to come together as God's people to recalibrate at the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate communion today. That's the purpose, I believe. That's one of the purposes that we recalibrate our identity and our justification based upon what Jesus has done on the cross. I can't wait to get back to Seattle and start spending time with my new friend, Koske. I'm excited about helping him discover that it's not religion that will help him get a good life. Rather, it's Jesus, something much, much better. An entirely new life with Christ as his Savior and Master. That is the good news of the gospel. Please pray for Koske and me. Lord, thank you for the amazing truth of the gospel. Thank you that in a world where we live constantly evaluated, constantly measured by one kind of performance or another, that your gospel comes to us as a fresh gift. Setting us free, Lord, from self-condemnation, setting us free from guilt, setting us free from self-righteousness, attempting to win or earn your favor, simply acknowledging your love and grace, unchanging grace. So even as we celebrate, Lord, the Lord's table, your table today, bring us back, Lord, to the glorious truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.